All right, and if you have a Bible, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. If you're using our Black Pew Bible or an English Standard Version, most of those Bibles will have Matthew 24 on page 829. So as we're going to start this next chapter, uh, an easy, simple question to get your attention, to make sure you listen up and pay attention to not just this message, but the weeks to come, is, um, is COVID-19 a, uh, a sign of the end of the world? What do you think? Pandemic? Wars and rumors of wars? Craziness going on around us? How many times have you talked to somebody in the recent days and months, weeks, and you've said, man, it's crazy times right now. It's a crazy world we're living in. So is it, is it the end of the world? Is this the sign that you need to pay attention and, and wake up and be alert? Because right around the corner, Jesus is coming any moment because COVID-19 should be a sign to alert you. It might be today, tomorrow. Is that the way we should be thinking about the events around us? Well, let me just read the text, the whole chapter, and see if you might get, if you've never read this chapter before, maybe just reading it will help you understand why a quick Google search, Matthew 24, end of the world, COVID-19, I did that this week. There's lots of hits. There are people writing, speaking, talking about, see? This is it. We're in the end days, friends. So let's just read the text and see if you can understand why some people might think that. And then we'll continue on with some thoughts about that idea. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, and there will be earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there will be vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Well, good morning. Everyone awake, welcome to Embassy Church, where we read the Bible, every word of it being inspired and good and fruitful for your correction and instruction, including Matthew 24. 
Is it uh, obvious to state that uh, this is the most controversial passage that we will cover in our series teaching through the gospel according to Matthew? So as a church, we have decided that we're going to work through books of the Bible. Right now, we've decided uh, for the last two and a half years to kind of inch our way through the gospel according to Matthew here. And so when we get to a controversial section, what we should do is read it and then just say, all right, let's go home. Let's skip that. Don't need to talk about it. We don't need any debates or discussions. Let's all just get along and love one another. Of course not. No, we want to dive into God's word and see what it has for us. So here's the plan for today's message. There is way more in this passage. I am not preaching all of chapter 24. We're going to be in 24 probably for a month or more, just to give you a heads up. I want to cover the first three verses, but before we dive into those three verses, I'm going to flip the sermon around backwards. I'm going to give you two points of application about how to think about this next little series of sermons on Matthew 24. So these comments are supposed to be instructive for not just today's message, but anytime you're reading, discussing, thinking about this chapter or ones like it. So two points of application, then let's look at these first three verses of the chapter and call it a day for this message. That's the plan. Let's start with our two points of application. I think this passage is going to challenge two things. First, it's going to challenge your view about the Bible. How you understand and read Matthew 24 is going to be a good indicator at how you kind of approach the Bible and your study and reading of Scripture in general. What I mean by that is, do you read the Bible literally or literarily? Did you catch that? It's clever, right? I didn't make that up, but I thought it was good. Do you read the Bible literally or literarily? In other words, if we mean by, do you read the Bible literally? And many of you might be like, well, I do. I take the Bible very seriously. And if any of you have been around Embassy Church, you know that we do too, which is why we go through books of the Bible and don't skip controversial sections. If you mean by literal as face value, I want to kind of just come out at the start and say, I don't really believe any of you actually take the Bible at face value every verse but that you read it literarily, that you understand that sometimes the Bible will use hyperbole, exaggeration, figures of speech, poetry, symbols and, and metaphors all the time. And you take it that way because we went through this gospel according to Matthew, and I preached on Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus said, these are his words, if you have ever lusted at a woman, You should gouge out your eye or cut off your hand because it would be better for you to go to heaven, you know, with one hand and one eye than to go to hell with both eyes and both hands. And as I look around the room and the the outdoor gathering space here, it appears that all of you have both eyes and both hands, meaning you read it literarily. No one in this church thinks that Jesus literally, on face value, meant gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. You thought it was a metaphor. And you were right, because I don't think Jesus is talking about us destroying our bodies that way. So if we mean as literal face value, I really don't think anyone here is actually in that camp. But if we mean by literal that we are saying that the original meaning of the author, as it's understood in its context, its setting, its grammar, its language and genre, that we should take that point seriously as if what he meant is what we should mean. 
well, then, yeah, you should take the Bible literally that way. But that would allow for room to read it literarily. The Bible is a sophisticated work of literature. You could spend your entire life studying it, and I don't think you will ever get to the depths of its riches. So don't think that the Bible is just always in every place, on every page, simple and easy to understand. In fact, in one of Peter's letters, he says, you know that guy, Paul? He has written some really hard things that are difficult to understand. So the Bible says about itself that some parts are easier to understand than others. Therefore, every verse of the Bible is not only of equal importance, but every verse of the Bible is not of equal clarity or simplicity. Some passages of the Bible are going to confuse and complex and create controversy. And Matthew 24 is just one of those passages of Scripture. And so we might say, along with Peter, there are some things that Jesus said that are kind of difficult to understand. And this should bring us humility, but it should also help us in our approach to the Bible to understand and work hard and think well and have nuance and not just look for a little sound bite, a little tweet, a little phrase or saying of something that we can just take home. But friends, let's be challenged in our view of the Bible and challenge our mind and our hearts to think deeply about the Word of God. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two. This passage of scripture, because of its controversy, is then therefore going to challenge the unity of our church. In other words, do we all need to agree with Pastor Phil's interpretation of Matthew 24 in order for us to continue to love each other and be a church together? Is it, in other words, essential? Is it essential to our doctrine that we all agree what it meant when Jesus said, and somebody will be in a field and they will be taken. Do you realize some people think that means that we'll be sitting around and then all of a sudden some of us will get raptured, lifted up and suck up into the sky, you know, like Star Trek or something. Some people think taken means very negative, like you're going to be taken by military invasion and being taken is, is actually a horrible thing, not going to heaven, but being killed or imprisoned. So which is right? Do we need to agree or can we agree to disagree? And that's the sort of thing that we're going to keep coming up against as we go through Matthew 24. Some of you are probably in this gathering and you've already thought through this and studied this and you're going to disagree with me or the elders or somebody else in this church. And I want to suggest that this teaching on Matthew 24 today and the coming weeks is not essential for us to be a church together. We can agree to disagree. We can say, hey guys, some things in the Bible are hard to understand. And so therefore, let's be gracious to one another. At Embassy Church, we have already agreed upon what we think is essential about the end times or the end of the world kind of theology. Here's what we have agreed upon. Embassy Church, let me refresh your memory. This is our statement of faith. This is the very last article in the statement of faith. And on the teaching of the end of the world or the last things, we have written this. Christ will personally and visibly return by descending from heaven and raising the bodies of the dead from the grave. At that time, there will be a final judgment during which the wicked will be declared guilty and sentenced to endless conscious punishment in hell. And the righteous in Christ will be rewarded with endless conscious joy in the new heaven and the new earth. 
This judgment will fix forever the final state of people in heaven or hell based upon God's perfect justice, and those belonging to Jesus will have eternal life and live sinlessly in everlasting joy to the glory of God. The end. That's it. There's nothing else. Do you want to add to that, Embassy Church? I don't mean this as just a rhetorical preacher kind of point. I mean this quite literally on face value, literally. Are we satisfied with that summary of our teaching about the end times? Or should we include something about preterism, tribulation, rapture, millennium, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, ah-mill, pre-mill, post-mill? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably for the best right now. So I really want us to think as a church family, is, let's say, for example, the rapture. It was not in our statement of faith. We have intentionally, that was not like a missite. We come up to this study in Matthew 24, like, oh, shoot, we didn't make a stance on the rapture in our statement of faith. What were we thinking? Oh, no, we thought about that. And we thought, this is not something for us to, disagree, to agree upon in order to be a church. We can agree to disagree. We would like the church to be unified primarily around the gospel of Jesus Christ, about who God is, about who we are as sinners, about what God has done for us in Christ to save us and reconcile us to him and the rest of the world through his cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, his promise to return. So if I could sum it up just real simply, that paragraph I just read, we believe as a church, Jesus is coming back. Amen? We believe Jesus is coming back and he is not taking us away. He might do that at some point, depending on where you stand on that view. But the primary end goal of the Bible is to come back to the earth and resurrect bodies from the dead. In the same way that his body was resurrected from the dead, your future hope as a Christian is not floating off into the sky. Your future hope, and again, Maybe that'll happen. Maybe there is a rapture and you float off in the sky. But after the rapture, the end goal, the end of all things should be resurrection hope that in the same way Jesus rose from the dead, you will be raised from the dead and with him on the renewed heaven and earth here. Here. Not a new planet somewhere else. Here. That's what our teaching statement is summarizing. God wants to renew this earth and live with us forever in the person of Christ on his return. And then there will be a judgment of heaven and hell. So we believe, if you could sum it up, Jesus is coming back. We will all be raised from the dead. And there is a real heaven and hell. That, that maybe sums it up as simple as I can state it. And there's not much about the timing or the location, or the details of how all that comes about in our statement. So a couple weeks ago, to illustrate this, I received an email from someone that said, hey, I'm looking for a new church. And I didn't see in your statement of faith any mention of the term rapture. And I briefly summarized what I just summarized to you, which was, yeah, we kind of felt like as a church family, this was not essential for us to be a church together. And we went back and forth a couple emails, and this was the last thing I got from this individual. And I'm using this to mostly just give an illustration of what church unity should not look like. This person said, well, I was just checking to see who the real wheat and tares are. 
you need to go look at yourself in the mirror, sir. If you believe in something other than a pre-tribulation rapture, then that makes you part of those five foolish virgins. By the way, five foolish virgins is Matthew 25. It's going to be the next part. It's kind of still a part of this section that we're in. So if you don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, you are one of those five foolish virgins. You are someone who professes Christ with your lips, but you have wickedly departed from him. You are disobeying him. This, my friend, is a salvation issue whether you want to believe it or not. Why don't you just go on sleeping until the end of the age? Sign off, end of email. I wanted to share that first to give you an example of what I hope will never come out of your mouths. That is not agreeing to disagree. That is taking a bold stance and saying, friends, we all have to agree on Matthew 24, and if we don't, you're going to hell. That's essentially what he said to me. I don't think we should talk that way, friends. I think we should pray for this person. This is, in some sense, laughable, and in another sense, just deeply sad. Making something that is not a gospel issue the gospel. So I would encourage all of us to pursue unity and love as we discuss and debate these matters. We're talking about whether or not COVID-19 might be the end of the world. It's kind of relevant. And so I, I do think that some of you will land on different sides of this, and it will be important for us to use humility and charity and love. So let's close out our time looking at the first three verses of chapter 24. And let me give you one big idea to get us started on Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is first and foremost about the destruction of the temple and not the end of the world. So if you were waiting for that moment of like, wait, is, it, is COVID-19 the end of the world? You're really not going to find, I think, that many specific answers in chapter 24 of Matthew. It is first and foremost about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple that Jesus is just walking out of in our passage was just spending the last few days interacting with the scribes and Pharisees. And the entire section that we have been working through from chapter 21 until now has been all centered around the temple and the judgment that God is bringing because of the rejection of Jesus. This is not just all of a sudden we start talking about the destruction of the temple. Go back, listen to the Matthew series through our sermon podcast, and you will know that we have been talking about this for months now. So it should not be a surprise if we're going to read the Bible in context to see, oh, we're still talking about that. And so look, in the first verse, notice that this is what is happening as we set up these verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. In Mark's version of this, he puts this much more enthusiastically. What big stones, what big buildings they have. And this is one of the points where you and I need to realize that there are two things about the temple that you may not think about when you hear this passage. First, this passage, I think, teaches that it was beautiful, amazing. Just a few little stats to make sure we're all on the same page as to why these disciples would be like, wow that temple. That's amazing. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In both size and in significance, it was magnificent. Herod started working on this building complex before the birth of Jesus. As they're talking about the temple in Matthew 24, Jesus is roughly around 30 years old. So we're talking 30 plus, maybe 40 plus years. 
Herod's still not done the temple. This is a construction project that's been going on for four to five decades. The whole temple complex took up roughly 35 acres worth of land. The circumference of the edge around its walls was about a mile. Some of the walls would be 160 feet high, and one corner was over the slope of the Kidron Valley, making it 15 stories from the bottom of the valley to the top of the temple wall. This is a quote from Josephus. So this is a first century Jewish historian as he's talking about the temple. Listen to what this man says as to his personal, visible, eyewitness testimony of this monstrosity and this brilliance of a, of a building. He says, the outward face of the temple and its front was covered all over with plates of gold and of great value and weight. At the first rising of the sun, the sun would reflect back a very fiery splendor, causing everyone who was looking at it to turn their eyes away, just as you would if you were looking at the sun itself with its blinding rays. The temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow, because the parts that were not covered with gold were white. For all of those that were not, they were exceedingly bright white, and on top of it had spikes with sharp points to prevent any pollution from any birds ever sitting on it. Some of the individual stones used to build it were 68 feet long. Now he uses cubits, but I'm just translating that for you, or for any of you that need the metric system, about 20 meters, nine feet high, eight feet wide. If we take his words at face value, and he's not exaggerating, and scholars kind of debate, some think like, eh, he might just be exaggerated here, because that's a tractor trailer. A stone, a single stone to build this temple is the size of the, the back half, the tractor trailer, but bigger. So next time you go down the interstate and you see one of those big tractor trailers, imagine the size of that trailer, but bigger. That's just one stone in this temple complex, according to Josephus. Now we know from historical, uh, I mean, not, not historical, but even just, if you go visit Israel today, there are some stones that are still there on the foundation that are over 16 feet uh, wide and, and long. And so even then, 16 feet or, or about five meters would be quite a sight for some of these smaller stones. Therefore, it seems the disciples were admiring what would be for you and I coming up to any large city and, and you're seeing the skyline of Chicago when you pull up on I-90 from Indiana and you see it in the water there over Lake Michigan or when you're in New York City and you see its skyline. Th this is that kind of admiration. It reminds me of when Sam and Erica and Eddie and I, we went to Dubai and we were looking at the the tallest building of the world, and we're just staring at it and, and admiring, wow! And I wanted to go up, but no one else wanted to go with me, so we didn't. The disciples are admiring this temple, and now they have been in the temple complex for days. So in verse 1 here, perhaps it should not be understood of them just all of a sudden for the first time being like, oh, I didn't notice till now, but this is a beautiful building. But instead, Let's read the Bible in context. Remember what Jesus just said a couple verses earlier? Look at verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then if there wasn't that chapter break, we'd keep reading and say Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples 
came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They just heard Jesus say to Jerusalem as he is lamenting and crying and grieving, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house, your temple is going to be uninhabited. And the disciples are looking around and they're being like, what is this guy talking about? This beautiful, gigantic building that's been taking 40 plus years to build, it's going to be uninhabited? How in the world is that going to happen? And Jesus doubles down and says in verse 2, but he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Remember that description from Josephus, the gold that is all over the temple. And when there wasn't gold, it was that limestone that's just this brilliant white. Well, General Titus of the Roman army in AD 70 ordered that the temple would be burned to the ground and then added a further order to his soldiers. Pick apart every single stone so that all of the gold would be salvaged and kept for us. In other words, this word in verse 2 should be taken, I think, literally at face value. Not one stone will be left upon another. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened 40 years later. Verse 3. Here's where things get interesting. In your Bibles, you might have a paragraph break. And I think this is, again, maybe most unfortunate because this is where people think, okay, Jesus is done talking about the temple and we're going to move on and we're going to change the subject and we're going to talk about the end of the world. Verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So remember, I just mentioned the Kidron Valley. There's a valley that goes between the Mount of Olives and the Jerusalem Mount where the temple is. And so it'd be, they're, they're a ways away now, and they now have this gorgeous sight and view of the temple, and there's a valley between them, and now they are sitting there. And the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And this, my friends, will determine where we go from the rest of this series through Matthew 24. When will these things take place and what will be the sign? There's two questions, two parts to the question. When and what? A question about timing and a question about signs. Jesus' answer to the first part of that question, I think, will be what we will start covering, Lord willing, next week in verse 4. All the way to verse 35. So if you jump over to verse 35 in your Bibles... I want you to see that Jesus' definitive, clear answer is right there in verse 35, starting really in verse 34, but 35 is the end of the section. Truly I say to you, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Do you notice the phrase, these things? It matches the question, tell us when these things will be. And if you're reading just in the flow of the chapter, the things that they're talking about is the temple. That's what they've been talking about since chapter 21. And as I just mentioned, the topic has not shifted. So when will these things take place? That's their first question. Answer, this generation. And then this is where people get off on all kinds of explanations and disagreements. And let me just simply state right from the get-go, I believe Jesus is talking about 
this generation as we, is in the next 40 years. Jewish calendars, timing, they talk about generations as being in cycles of 40 years. Think back at the book of Numbers. This generation is going to die off and then another generation is going to come. How long did they wander around in the wilderness in the book of Numbers? 40 years. So roughly speaking, a generation is 40 years. And Jesus says, within 40 years, these things will take place. Did they? Was Jesus a true prophet? Or was he an invalid, false prophet that doesn't know what he's talking about? Well, the records show in 70 AD, about 40 years, plus or minus, those things took place. Not one stone was left on another. The second question about the signs seems to be answered after verse 35. Starting in verse 36, going all the way to verse 46, we have Jesus talking about the signs of the end of the age. And that will be how we will unpack chapter 24. Now we'd have to understand what it means to be signs, what the end of the age means. And for that, we're running out of time and we should move on with one final point before we sing our next song. I want you to realize that one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, the reason that we have hope in the resurrection, that one day there is going to be good news for us, is because Jesus took a stand about corruption in the temple and said God's judgment is coming and he was willing to die for it. In fact, let me read you a little passage of scripture that flips forward. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, I mean, move on from Matthew chapter 24 and you move on to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 59. It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find one. Many false witnesses came forward and at last two came forward. The first man said, this man said that I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you any answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Part of the reason why you and I think, oh, Jesus is talking about the end of the world is because you don't think about the significance of Jesus's statements about the temple the way you should. This is politically not correct. This is sacrilegious for a Jew. It's being used as testimony to try and put Jesus to death at his trial in Matthew 26. Or if you jump forward to Matthew 27, when they crucified him, in verse 36, they divided his garments and cast lots, and they sat down and they kept watched over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him and said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. Yet again, we see in the very moments at the climax of the story of the whole Bible and the life of Jesus, right in the center of that controversy are the claims that Jesus made about the destruction of the temple. Or if I could put it as heart-wrenching as we could say it, Jesus died. He gave his life for these words that we're about to read. Let's not miss the significance of them and the importance of the temple and what Jesus is talking about when he says, not one stone will be left on another. 
Or to put it another way, he's talking about the end of the world, not the space-time cosmic universe. The destruction of the temple is the end of the Jewish world. That would be like destroying the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol building, the Supreme Court, and you name it. All in one swift act of judgment. It would be like the United States is being taken out. And you'd say, wow, this is the end. Because sure enough, that's what it felt like. And that's why Matthew 24 speaks and talks the way it does. It's apocalyptic, prophetic literature. And so we're going to work through that week by week. But first, let us, at least in this Sunday sermon, appreciate that Jesus' body became the temple so that you and I could worship freely here, wherever we wanted. His temple is the church. His spirit is with us. When two and three gather in his name and exercise his reign and rule of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so he would die because he thinks that this is the plan of God and the movement of salvation from Old to New Testament. It's good news for us, friends. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for these words of Jesus. And we pray that you would give us illumination to help us understand them, that you'd open our eyes to your word and help us with what are challenging matters. Give us humility in our spirit but most of all, give us gratitude and appreciation that Christ is enough. His blood is sufficient. His cross, it cancels out all of our sin and records against us. And we are deserving of that judgment and wrath that was poured out on the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus absorbed that like a sponge soaking up every last drop of that cup. We want to thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice for our sins, his hope because of the resurrection and our future hope of being raised from the dead. Lord, I pray that that would help us in this crazy time that we're living in called COVID-19. Lord, give us this faith in Jesus' name. Amen.